If you're looking to enhance your personal or group Bible study, look no further than the Jeremiah Bible Study Series. In each volume, Dr. David Jeremiah helps you understand what the Bible says and how to apply it. Along the way, you will gain insights into the text, identify key themes, and be challenged to apply the truth found in Scripture to your life. Get your copy today. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca slash study. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash study. Are you haunted by past sins that seem so terrible? There's no way God could forgive you? That's a heavy burden to bear, but there is hope. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah offers assurance and comfort from the Bible on the amazing size and scope of God's forgiveness. From 10 questions Christians are asking, here's David to introduce today's message, Is There a Sin God Cannot Forgive? Well, thank you for joining us for the Friday edition of Turning Point. Uh, One of my goals on Friday is to try to get us ready for the weekend. Uh, Usually that means a little speech for me about the importance of going to church. And uh, been more important for me to say that in recent days than it has ever been, because a lot of people are holding back on returning to church way beyond um, the need for safety precautions. You know, we can get into bad habits, uh, and if we're not careful, those habits can change the way we live our life. So if if you're not sick, especially if you've been vaccinated, you need to get back to church. You're needed there. You need the encouragement and fellowship of the church. The church was God's best idea apart from the family, and you need to take advantage of it. It's not going to do you any good if you don't go. So I want to encourage you to go to church. And then uh, along with that, this almost sounds counterintuitive, but it's not. When you're not in church, uh, not during the service times, we try to do our best to stay away from the service times on television. But uh, every weekend we're on the NRB TV, we're on Inspiration Network, we're on USA, we're on the Cowboy Channel, on RFD TV, we're on God TV, we're on Lifetime, we're on Newsmax TV. Trinity Broadcasting Network, Fox Business, CTN, Daystar, the Hillsong Channel. All these channels carry our weekend television program. And if it happens to be that where you go to church, our program is on in conflict with that, well, go to church. You can't DVR church, but you can DVR our program. So do that. And then when you get home had your lunch, you can sit down and watch the television program in your own time schedule. I just want to let you know this is important. The weekends are critical. I believe the weekends belong to God. When we give them to God, He blesses us. So I get to church this week. Now, what we have to do today is begin this new message called, Is There a Sin God Cannot Forgive? Is there such a thing as an unpardonable sin? Have you sinned in such a way that you are not capable of being forgiven by God? Here's the answer to that question. One of the questions I have been asked over the years that I've been doing what I do is this, Pastor, can I commit a sin that God cannot forgive? Quite often this question is asked in the past tense like, I think I've done something that God will not forgive. I've tried to get God to forgive me, but I don't feel like he has forgiven me, and I can't forgive myself. Pastor, I think I may have committed the unpardonable sin. This question usually comes from someone who has an overwhelming sense of guilt 
for something that they have done in the past. And it is usually a reference to the passage of Scripture that we're going to study today. For here in Mark, and again in a more fleshed out way in Matthew's account of this event, we are told that there is something which a person can do for which there is no forgiveness in this age or even in the age to come. I'm not making that up. That's what the scripture says. So as we explore this question today, I need to do it in the context of the book of Mark and in the flow of the story, and so that's what I'm going to do. We're going to continue our record of what Jesus is doing as according to Mark He continues to make an assault upon the kingdom of darkness. Our context today is the story about a man who was possessed of a demon. And in the story, our Lord confronts this demon, and the demon is cast out, and the man is completely healed. But the result of what Jesus did is another confrontation with the religious people of his day. These people are not impressed by what Jesus is doing. They are actually convicted by it. And as we're going to see in the story, out of what Jesus did that day come the three most prominent opinions that people have today about who Jesus Christ really is. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, in the 20th verse of the third chapter, we discover, first of all, that to his family, Jesus was demented. Now, I'm not saying that to get your attention. It's just true. Verse 20 and 21 of Mark 3 reads like this. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. The pressure and intensity of Jesus' ministry has escalated to such an extent that there's not any time for him even to eat. It says there was no time for them to eat. Have you ever been so busy you've forgotten to eat? That happens to me once in a while on Saturdays when I'm all by myself and I'm caught up in what I'm doing and all of a sudden I realize I haven't eaten, but it's not because I'm just so pressed, I just forget. But in this situation, the Bible says Jesus was so involved in his healing ministry and in the miracles that he was doing that the intensity became so incredible that he and his disciples weren't even eating. You remember Jesus is kind of on this routine we've observed where he goes into an area and he does some miracles and it creates such an incredible crowd that he has to move away because the crowd is dangerous for him. So he goes into the wilderness, and as soon as they find out where he is, all of the people come to where he is, and the crowd grows again. In this particular situation, the Bible says the crowd has become intense, the pressure has become intense, and the word about it gets back to Nazareth where Jesus lived, and his family, his own, more than likely his brothers, come to Capernaum, and the Bible says they come, and we would call this to perform an intervention. (laughs) They're going to come and get Jesus. They're going to take him out of the situation. Actually, the words are to lay hold of, better translated to arrest or to seize. In other words, his brothers come to Capernaum to forcibly remove him from the crowds and take him home. Now, we can relax a little bit about that because no doubt they were doing it out of their love for him. 
They're concerned for his safety. They're concerned. I mean, the man's not eating. We got to get him out of this situation. We got to get him where we can take care of him. So I'm certain that some of it was motivated out of love, but the other side of it is that I think they were kind of embarrassed. We got to get Jesus home. He's doing incredible things. He's embarrassing us. He's acting in a fanatical, insane manner. You say, that's his own family? His brothers? Absolutely. Did you know that John 7 tells us that late in Jesus' ministry, even his brothers did not believe in him? John 7, 5. How could it be that he could grow up as the Messiah in the family and his brothers don't even know who he is and they don't believe in who he is? So when he's doing all these miracles and supposedly casting demons out of people, they come down to get him and say, we got to get this boy home before he embarrasses us even more. Now, it's bad enough not to believe in someone, but they not only didn't believe in him, they thought he was crazy. Jesus' brothers thought he was crazy. They said he is out of his mind. That's biblical for crazy. How many of you know that if you're a follower of Christ, sooner or later, somebody's going to think you're crazy? (laughs) I think a lot of people think evangelicals today are crazy, that we are crazy because we believe in Jesus and we believe the Bible. And it shouldn't surprise us. They thought that of Jesus. They thought that of those who followed Jesus. Do you know that when Paul was on trial before Festus, Festus said to Paul one time, he said, Paul, you are beside yourself. You are crazy. He said, much learning is making you mad. Paul, you've been spending too much time at the library. (laughs) The very best thing they were saying about Jesus in the language of today is that Jesus had become a radical. Now, what comes to your mind when I say he's a radical? If you go to New York almost at any time, you'll run into street preachers. Have you ever been in a place where street preachers are out on the corner screaming out the judgment of God against everybody who walks by? And we say, oh, that guy's radical. He's a fanatical. And sometimes that's true. We've had books written on what it means to be a radical. Let me tell you what I think a radical really is. Because after you hear this, you're going to realize that most of us in this room, we're radicals. (laughs) I read this recently from the pen of Mike Barrett. Here's what he said. After traveling from Portland to Delhi looking for radical faith, here's the conclusion that I came to that might surprise you. Radical in its origins really means to be rooted. The idea behind the word is to be so grounded, so deeply rooted in lifestyle direction that you stand against the social and cultural currents that tear others away from your path. It's not so much forcing a change of course, but returning yourself and others to an originally intended path. By this definition, classic radicalism is found in the lives of many historical figures, people who stood up for human rights and religious reform. Today, anyone who adheres to the person and teaching of Christ in the midst of a runaway humanism and hedonism is by definition a radical. It's essentially building your house on a rock that doesn't get torn down in cultural storms. So becoming a true radical is to return yourself and others to a sacred path and stand against modernity's eroding influences. So I want to confess to you, I am a radical. 
To be a radical is to stand for the truth. To stand against those who want to tear you away from the truth or tear the truth away from you. And so in that respect, Jesus surely was a radical. But he was not insane. To his family, Jesus was demented. But it gets worse. To his foes, he was demonic. Read with me again from verse 22. The accusation of the scribes who said he was possessed by a demon. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He, Jesus, has Beelzebub. (laughs) Now, here's what happened. The ministry of Jesus in Capernaum had come to the attention of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. They heard what Jesus was doing, that he was healing the sick, that he was casting out demons, that people were flocking to him, and they came to Capernaum to check it out. And the scribes got to Capernaum just in time to watch Jesus cast the demon out of this man. And the scribes acknowledged that Jesus performed unusual miracles, and that he did it by some supernatural power But without any question, they accused Jesus himself of being possessed, not just by a demon, but being possessed by Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies, or the word that is used to describe Satan. They said that the Son of God was demon-possessed, that the Son of God was controlled by Satan himself. Not only that, they said he was powered by this demon. Notice, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. The scribes from Jerusalem accused Jesus of casting out demons in the power of Satan, the prince of demons. They were saying that Jesus was a son of Satan, that he was demonized, a sorcerer who performed exorcisms by satanic power. If you read Matthew's account of this event, you can begin to understand why it got such attention. Mark doesn't give us all the details of what happened in that moment when Jesus cast the demon out of this man. But in Matthew's account, we read these words. Then one was brought to Jesus who was demon-possessed. Now watch carefully. He was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed, and they said, Could this be the son of David? And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. The healing of this man by the Lord Jesus when he cast the demon out of him was so outstanding, was so incredible. Nothing like this has happened up to this point. Watch carefully. There was no way for this man to be treated normally. The scripture says he was mute, which means he was deaf and he couldn't speak, and he was also blind. No exorcist could deal with him because there was no way of assaulting his spirit as would be needed to cast out the demons. How do you get through to a man who can't see anything and can't hear anything and can't speak anything? But when Jesus cast the demon out of this man, the scripture says, All of his maladies were cured at once. And the man who couldn't see could now see clearly. And the man who couldn't hear could now hear clearly. And the man who couldn't speak could speak intelligently. And the people were amazed. And they said, rightly so, 
could this be the son of David? In other words, is this the Messiah we've been looking for? Because the Old Testament prophesied that when the Messiah came, he would do marvelous deeds as Jesus had just done. And they had never seen anything like this before in Israel. Surely this must be the son of David. Surely this must be the Messiah. And when the scribes heard this, they went ballistic. They said, it's true, we saw a miracle. It's true, it was an unusual and astounding miracle. But this cannot be explained as a miracle of the son of David. This is a miracle that was done in the power of Beelzebub, in the power of Satan. Essence, what they were saying is Satan is now obliging his friend Jesus by withdrawing demons from men. Who would want to follow a person who is a friend of Satan as Jesus obviously is? Isn't it a strange paradox, men and women, that in times of religious revival or the outworking of the Holy Spirit, it is usually the religious leaders who oppose the work of God most strenuously and seem to misunderstand it on purpose. The accusation of the scribes. Now I want you to notice how Jesus deals with this issue. Have you ever played this game? I'm not sure this is a legitimate game to play in your mind, but once in a while it's okay to do it, I think. Do you ever think what you would do if you were Jesus? I mean, here's these religious dudes come down from Jerusalem. They see you do the greatest miracle you've done up to this point, and then they say you're powered by a demon? And you're Jesus and you have all the power available to you that comes from Almighty God? You know, I'm thinking, you want to see somebody cast out? Watch this. (laughs) I'll cast you all out. (laughs) I'll show you something you can't deny. You know what Jesus did? It's amazing to me. There's no sense that he even got upset. He just presented his argument. I want you to see how he goes about this. The answer of the Savior. First of all, he asks a question. And that's always a good way to get involved with somebody who's spoken against you. Without making an accusation, you ask a question. You have an inquiry. He said to them, he called them to himself and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And the question really has no answer. And Jesus is about to prove it. And he goes through three lines of proof to demonstrate his point. First of all, His first illustration is a secular one. He says, you're saying that Satan cast out Satan. He said, well, let me just give you an illustration from the secular world. He says, a kingdom that is divided against itself cannot stand. In the secular world, we get that. A country that's having a civil war in its country is not going to be able very easily to fend off the enemies who are coming against the company because they can't focus their energy against an outward enemy, they're fighting against themselves. Jesus said, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Okay, I got that one. And then he goes from the secular world to the social world, and he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That house cannot stand. And what he's saying is that, what chance do children have in a home where the parents are constantly at each other's throats? What bond remains for any kind of mutual help or encouragement if a brother hates his brother? Such a family soon descends into chaos. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So a secular illustration, a kingdom. A social illustration, a family. Now he gives a spiritual illustration. And he says, 
And if Satan has risen up against himself and he is divided, he can't stand either. He has an end. In other words, he's finished. One commentator I read made this very interesting statement. He said, it is not Satan's kingdom that is usually divided. I mean, his kingdom seems to be all together. Those in Satan's kingdom are 100% in unity with each other. There's no fighting within the kingdom of Satan. It's in the kingdom of God that we fight. It's the kingdom of God that is divided. So Jesus makes his point. You're saying to me that I'm casting out Satan by Satan? That doesn't make any sense in the secular world, in the social world, or in the spiritual world. That doesn't work. And then his final argument is this really incredible illustration. He says in his insight part of this, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder or steal his goods. Now watch what Jesus is saying. Jesus now is explaining what has happened. He says that if a man wants to steal the goods of a strong man, the only way he can do that is he's got to go into the house and get the strong man under control. I mean, he's got to bind him up. He's got to tie him up so that he cannot defend himself against his intruder. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. Watch this. The strong man is Satan. His house is the kingdom which dominates the earth. And his possessions are the helpless victims that he holds. Only one who is stronger than Satan can free Satan's victims. And this is what Jesus has done. Entering Satan's house, Jesus bound Satan And he freed the demon that was his captive. Jesus appeals to the logical argument to answer the scribes' accusations. And instead of getting angry with them and casting a spell on them or doing something that he had certainly the power to do, he quietly, logically reasons with them and he leaves them speechless with nothing to say. By the way, What Jesus is saying by this illustration should give great hope to all of us in the world in which we live. Even the most ferocious demon flees at the word of Jesus. That could only mean that he's stronger than Satan and he's stronger than all of his demons put together. Jesus bound the strong man. He rendered him impotent and in doing so, he draws a straight line to one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, you have nothing to fear from Satan or his demons if you are in league with Jesus because the one you have is greater than the one who's out there. So to his family, Jesus was demented. And to his foes, he was demonic. Now we come to this part of the story that I started with at the beginning. To his followers, he was divine. What Jesus is going to prove now is that in order for you to be a follower of Jesus, there are certain things you must believe. You must believe that Jesus is God. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's very, very uh, fresh for me because we've been studying the Gospel of John at our church. And the Gospel of John was written to prove that Jesus is God. At the end of the book, he says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through his name. 
And um, the deity of Christ is critical. If he's not God, then he's not who he said he was. And why would you believe anything he says? No, he is who he says he was. He is God. Came to this earth, walked around for the three decades he was here. He never sinned. He went to the cross and was crucified as a perfect man, the spotless Lamb of God. And through his death on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin and mine so that we could have eternal life. And uh, if you have never trusted him, you need to understand that. You need to understand that Jesus Christ is God. On this earth, he was God walking around in a body. And because he was God, his death was infinite. He could die for everybody. He was God in a body dying on the cross. And his penalty there was our sin. And he paid for it in full and in the process gave us his righteousness so that we could qualify for fellowship with his Father. So you can accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Just tell him you're sorry for your sin. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to come into your heart and cleanse you. Tell him you know that he's the Son of God, and that you believe in him, and that your will is that he would become your Savior. And he will do it, and you will be changed. Well, have a great weekend, friends. I'll be back here on Monday with part two of Is There a Sin God Cannot Forgive? For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, 10 Questions Christians Are Asking, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected. Our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. When you do, ask for your copy of David's hardcover book, 10 Questions Christians Are Asking and learn to live with greater confidence. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your favorite smart devices or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries for instant access to our programs and resources. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.org radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we continue the series, 10 Questions Christians Are Asking, here on Turning Point. young ones in your life on an unforgettable journey that will get them excited about the Word of God with Airship Genesis Legendary Bible Adventures from Turning Point. Tune in to our monthly audio adventures and join the Genesis Exploration Squad as they travel back in time to experience the stories of the Bible firsthand and discover life-changing lessons. Also available is the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible packed with the biblical content specifically written for kids from trusted Bible teacher, Dr. David Jeremiah. You can also download our Airship Genesis mobile game on your favorite smart device and play as your favorite characters in this puzzle adventure game as the squad experiences the life of Jesus firsthand. Just go to your app store and type the keywords Airship Genesis. For more details or to order a copy of the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible, visit our website at airshipgenesis.com Bible. That's airshipgenesis.com slash Bible. Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State for two American presidents, as well as a national security advisor, was no stranger to crises. He once jokingly remarked, There can't be a crisis next week. My schedule's already full. It would be nice if we could arrange the crises in our life to come at convenient times. 
but the opposite seems to be true. They always come when least expected. But did you know that nothing is unexpected for God? What surprises us is no surprise to Him. Our best strategy is not to resist what He allows to come into our life, but to trust His timing. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's timing on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.